so hey everyone and welcome to another episode of Close Up with me, Kaya. And me, Amelia. And today we have a really special guest whose incredible work has had a huge impact on both of us. It's Arja Barber. Hi Arja. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're thrilled. How are you doing today? Well, I've had better days. You know, we recently had the IPCC uh, report come out. The news was pretty hard to swallow. Um, my cat's still injuring herself like no tomorrow because she thinks she's evil Knievel. So, you know, today is a struggle. But it, I, I, I tell myself everyone is living through hard stuff. We've been in a global pandemic for over a year now. Um, and so there will be times where it will be more of a struggle than others. And that is completely normal. Mm, definitely. And for people that maybe haven't read it or aren't aware of the IPCC report, what was the sort of headline? So, oh God, I don't want to depress people, but the IPCC report is an independent, um, it stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, you know, it's a, it's a intergovernmental body of the United Nations and, they basically provide facts about where we are in, in climate emergency. And basically the takeaways were the world is on fire. And if you don't do something now, it will be too late. So um, they just listed all the possibilities. And it, it feels a bit with some of our governments, like we're in a car with a driver who is drunk and they are just beating through every light possible and there's no seatbelts. That's what it feels like. It feels like you're trapped in a car and you're just like, oh my goodness. So this report came out. It basically said, we are not doing enough. If we do not act now, we're, we're in real trouble. And uh, it was just the usual from politicians. And it can't be the usual because the world is on fire and there's evidence of that every single day. Every single day now, when I open the news, buried, there is something about there's a fire in Turkey, there's a fire in Greece, um, a building in Miami completely collapsed, you know. So there's all these signs, but I do feel like we are in a society where the vast majority of the world's pop, pop, um, politicians are plugging their ears and going la, 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 la. And it's it's deeply frustrating. So what I've tried to do on Instagram is give people practical tools that they can engage in because it's very easy to fall into climate doom and to basically go, well, you know, we're fucked. Um, and so that's what I did today. And I write these things for myself because I'm not, I'm not superhuman. I'm not, you know, I can very easily fall into doom and gloom myself. And so I write for others, but I also write for me and I list out, this is what we can do. This is where we're at. It's not too late to, to, to keep ourselves from getting that two degree threshold. What we need is action now. And these are the practical things that you can do at your intersection. The term climate doom is so interesting because obviously it encapsulates exactly how you feel. But also I feel like it's a physicality. Like sometimes I feel like I can feel on my chest the weight of the world without sounding too cliche. And I feel like that's a big reason why a lot of people want to avoid it. And as you said, it is buried in the news. So how did you sort of 
become so involved in um, talking about the climate and how do you stay informed? So I was always someone who really cared about the planet. As a child, I had all of these Audubon Society books. There was a time period when I knew um, most of the insects of um, most of the wildflowers of North America. I was actually deeply into nature as a kid. What a dork. Um, and uh, I wanted to be a park ranger for a while. And I remember receiving this book when I was 10 years old. That was like 50 things children can do to save the planet. And up until I received that book, I didn't actually realize that the planet was in danger. And those messages were the exact same things that we were talking about right now. Uh, nothing has changed. We just kind of stopped talking about it. Like I remember in our schools when everyone was like, oh my God, the rainforest is in trouble. And then everybody got like, oh, we've got to save the rainforest. And this is when I was like 10, 11. And then we just stopped talking about it for years. But the rainforest has been in trouble that whole time. And, um, you know, for me, I've always been also interested in fashion and I began to understand in my 20s that the fashion industry was actually creating climate crisis. So the combination of, you know, caring about the planet, liking fashion, but also looking at the elements of the fashion industry that are destroying the planet, you know, I put all those interests together. And then, of course, as a Black person, you could not ignore the topic of race. Um, we never could avoid it. I, I avoided talking about it for the first half of my life. But um, you can't avoid it. And so I was writing about race and feminism. And what I realized is that all these topics really blended together, especially within the fashion industry. And that's basically the premise of my upcoming book, Consumed. It's about how all of these things matter and how all of these systems are linked to colonialism and climate change and consumerism. And we're so just distracted to just keep on buying. Meanwhile, the world is absolutely on fire. So I give people practical tips for really unpicking these systems because once you can actually look at these systems and really unpick them at the root, you feel really powerful. And that's what I want most. I want people to feel inspired. I want people to feel powerful because if we can change something like, you know, our wardrobe and how we're consuming those materials, I think once you start doing that, you feel really, really, you feel like you can change other things. So I start sort of, I talk mostly about fashion because I think that's where Instagram is really great at reaching people. And then I reel them in and then I'm like, let me tell you about all these other things as well. <laughs> Amazing. So like we, me and Kai have been talking about this a lot and, you know, how easy it is to just get a quick fix from buying something and like, I hold my hands up. But there's been times when I've needed to get something and I've just got it from, you know, a really big company just because I can get it on the next day delivery or it's just more convenient. Um, obviously, this is like such a huge question, but what would be kind of like your kind of main top tips on consuming ethically? Slow down. What you just said in that sentence about I can get it next day. Did you need it next day? Like sometimes we're in a pinch where we need that stuff. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you're, if, you know, you've got something that's broken in your house and it's actually impacting how you live, then like maybe you actually do need that next day screw, you know, whatever. But like 
I've never actually needed like a next day fast fashion dress. I've never needed it. Um, I used to wear my jeans and then it, they would like tear and then I'd be like, crap, now I need another pair. But I think the process of slowing down is so important because the speed at which we're moving on this planet is tenfold a part of that problem. You know, I've, I always joke that like the immediacy in which people are like, we need to talk to you about this. It's never really that immediate. I'm not like a firefighter or anything. You know what I mean? But that's a part of this world that we're living in that's very fast paced, that's very phone oriented, that's very instantaneous with social media. And you get that instant dopamine hit, you get the likes, all of this is adding into all of these problems. And so the first thing I tell people is to just take a break from consuming in general. Um, I had to do that for myself. And I remember thinking, when I started thinking about like coming down off of consumption, I remember going, but who will I be if I'm not buying fast fashion? And now that I look back, that's so sad to think that I felt like so much of my identity was tied to buying clothing from H&M at one point. And it's just like, that's sad. I am so much more than that. I'm a um, wife. I'm a sister. I'm an aunt, which is my favorite role. I'm a friend. Um, I'm a writer. These are identities that I'm proud of, but because we are sort of raised in a consumerist society, we actually do start to think that like consumption is part of our identity. And I think that's also um, a part of the habit of buying a lot as well. Like I, I write about habits in my book. And one of the things I say is change your identity, change like how you Sorry, my cat just came in dragging an enormous leaf. Um, the one cat is in the, the injured cat's in the bathroom. The non-injured cat is dragging an enormous leaf, which I will I probably it. have to take off her. Um, but, um, you know, change your identity. That's, that's what I tell people. If you think like, oh, I love shopping. I love shopping. I never actually love shopping that much. I love fashion. But like when I would go and sort of, binge on like fast fashion. The only time it felt great was in the store and at the till. When I got home, I immediately felt disgusted with myself. Like there were times when I would have to, I was lived with my parents on and off again until recently because that's the world we live in. There were times when I was literally like hiding my purchases from my mom, which is so embarrassing. Like, I'll just leave this in the car and then sneak out after she goes to bed. Like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> and so I kind of had to change my identity to be like, I am not a consumer. I am a citizen. I like fashion, but shopping isn't what makes fashion fashion. Fashion is style. It's, you know, finding your personal style. It's enjoying the things that you have in your wardrobe. It's finding new ways to wear different things. So I think I always tell people to question the idea of consumption in our society and how you've been trained to be a consumer. But there's so much of that in pop culture. I mean, you show me a cult classic movie and I'll show you a makeover scene. Mm. Like, Pretty Woman, The Devil Wears Prada, mm. you know, uh, even Clueless. You know, there's always a scene where a character gets a makeover that involves lots of shopping and lots of new things. And um, we normalize that in our society. We normalize it in media and movies and films. And so I always tell people, you're not this way because you just 
decided that you wanted to buy a lot. Like this is by design. This is what our society celebrates. And you also see it when politicians like Rishi Sunak tell us that, you know, it's on us to go out and support the economy by shopping a lot. I've read this depressing article recently where they were saying, and it was in a publication I'm not going to name because they're the worst. And they were like, a study has been done where we should give people a three-day weekend so that they'll shop more. And I'm just thinking, oh, I hate it here. Like, seriously, I think I love the idea of a three-day weekend. I love the idea of people working less. I love the idea of people spending more time with friends, family, going to the park. You know, when the pandemic first started, I said, when lockdown first started here, I said that like the dogs had planned it because every time I went to the park, all I saw was happy dogs, like dogs (laughs) being like, I never get to spend this much time with my owner. Um, And I love for people to have more of that in their life. I think that's the stuff that, that heals us and makes us happy. But imagine being so nefarious that you make a study about why you should give people more time off so that they shop more. Mm -hmm. After 9-11, George W. Bush, you know, addressed the morning nation and was just like, you know what you guys need to do? You need to shop. There was a strong (laughs) message of shopping to build the economy. Like, you know, don't mourn, don't pray, don't, don't, you know, sit and think about these things. No, no, go shopping. And so not only is this message in our media, it's pushed by politicians constantly. And Mm -hmm. I just want to give people the tools so that when they see it, they can be like, "Ah, there it is. Mm -hmm. And I think when people have those tools, they feel incredibly powerful. And that's what I want to do with my platform. That's amazing. Yeah. And you definitely succeeded as well. I mean, you've taught me so much, but um, especially when it comes to messaging, like I feel like for ages, brands didn't really care that they were clearly like not treating work as well. And were they still don't care. (laughs) Let's just be honest. They do not care. (laughs) No, but now like, obviously I think greenwashing is called, isn't it? So like Zara will have like H&M will have a conscious range or Primark have got like a, Primark cares. And I feel like it's very transparent that it's bullshit, but Mm -hmm. how do they get away with saying it? Uh, Because advertising isn't something that we regulate enough in our world. I mean, think about it. Like for years, they knew that like cigarettes caused cancer and the cigarette industry fought it so hard for years. I think that's, um, that's a part of like the first season of Mad Men, like they're, agency has lucky strike as a client and it's all about like oh my god how do we fight this off and I think it's very similar with um fast fashion and I I think I see some governments starting to really ask questions like in Norway H&M was dragged by their their advertising board for making false and misleading claims. But we need our governments to be doing the same thing. Yeah. Interesting also that it happened in Norway and not Sweden. I had someone who messaged me on on Instagram. It was just like, I'm Swedish and I feel like our government will never regulate them because they make too much money for like the GDP. It is insane. And I think like it's so overwhelming kind of trying not to consume having to change your identity, all those kinds of things, you know, trying to stop climate change, all those kind of things are kind of like major, major overhauls of like, you know, everyone's life. So it feels overwhelming at first. It's not overwhelming at all. Those first two weeks, you're kind of like, 
oh, I kind of miss browsing on my phone and looking at 14,000 dresses on ASOS. But then after a week or two, you start to be like, I don't miss that at all. I cannot believe how much time I spent putting into this system. Like I was someone that was a hardcore fast fashion shopper. I mean, there were certain stores where I could just never do it because I could smell the exploitation like Forever 21. I just thought there's no way that they can make clothing that cheap. And also everything I bought had a shelf life of one wear, which I began to view as an epic waste of my money. Um, And so Yes, at first it seems hard with this system. Like, don't get me wrong. When addressing climate emergency, this is going to be like the battle of our lifetime. But this is the system where I think we've tricked ourselves into thinking it's really hard to get yourself out of. But I actually think when I slowed down, I got more time back. I got more time back. I got more brain space back. I saved more money. Like with fast fashion You think, okay, it's cheap. So like, I'm not spending that much money. I'm actually saving money. But depending on the frequency that you shop, you might not be saving money at all. And that was what I found for myself. One year, I added up all the receipts from like one store in particular. And, you know, I had been shopping other places. And um, that year, I believe on my tax returns, I made about $12,000. I was living with my parents I spent twelve hundred at that oh store. Oh my god! See, like, wow. but I didn't even notice it. I didn't notice it because I wasn't tracking my spending. I, you know, it was one of those things where I get off work and I just pass the store and be like, "Oh, I guess I'll just go have a look." I work today, you know, or whatever. And I wanted to kick my own ass, you know, and that isn't obviously that doesn't have to be everyone spending that amount of money, but I guarantee you. If most fast fashion consumers actually really added up how much they were putting into the system, they might be a little horrified by it. So we we trick ourselves because we're we have this identity that's been pushed on us through every facet of society into thinking this is really hard. But honestly, it costs nothing to just slow down. You know, if you have enough clothing in your wardrobe and it fits, it costs you nothing to be like. I'm going to take a breather this month. And I think what people find is even if you take a breather for a week, after about two weeks, you kind of are just like, wait, maybe I should just not do as much of this. And then before you know it, it's six months and you're like, I got hoodwinked by the system because I get those messages every day. And that's exactly how I felt. And the thing about fast fashion is that It takes a lot of consumers buying frequently in order for the system to maintain profitability. Like if it were just one of us buying one garment a year, like from a lot of these stores, they wouldn't be as profitable as they are. They wouldn't create billionaires in every corner. But like it's a lot of us buying, well, the average fast fashion consumer in America buys 68 items of clothing a year. I think... um it's really, you, I, I know you've spoken about this before and like your answer is really interesting, but you know, a lot of people will say, you know, what about people, uh, you know, marginalized people or people from low income backgrounds? You know, they can't afford to buy non fast fashion. Um, what would you say to people who kind of suggest that? Um, I think they're kind of protecting the system because they want to, because I grew up with a lot of people of different income levels, including in my own family. Like my parents were lower middle class. That's not the reality for 
family members and people that we know. But one thing I know is that people that are particularly poverty line, you know, aren't necessarily the ones buying a ton of fast fashion anyways. Like one of the things that we know is that marginalized poor people have always been more sustainable than anyone else. That's not the face of sustainability on Instagram, but it should be. My mom has never met a plastic Tupperware container that she wouldn't reuse again. Yet over on social media, you have people acting like you have to go out and buy yourself new bamboo containers in order to be the perfect, you know, ethical and sustainable consumer. That's not actually sustainability. Sustainability is using what you already have. My mother, people's grandmothers, especially like black and brown people, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And my mom was never a fast fashion consumer. Now, obviously, my family's, um, our class markers have definitely changed within my lifetime. But my mom was never going to be a fast fashion shopper because she was always going to the charity shop where she could get next to new Patagonia, next to new North Face. She wasn't trying to buy some disposable clothing. And I've had friends who were from low income backgrounds that have been like, yeah, I can't really buy like that because I need a coat that's really going to last. And I don't think that those things last, you know, and I thought about that all along while I was buying into it. Of course, there's a part of me that was like, but it's fun to shop this way. Um, But I think this idea that a person who is low income is the person who is automatically going to buy fast fashion is completely false. Before fast fashion existed, also people were dressing themselves. And I've seen this system come in within the last 20 years of my lifetime and really speed up. So I think we need to, you know, get right with who's like buying the most amount of fast fashion. If somebody is on the poverty line and that's what they can afford, that is absolutely none of anyone's business. But I think we all know which one of our peers drives a luxury vehicle and is going and dropping money at these stores every weekend. I think we know those people. Mm. That's who you should be talking to, you know? I've got so yeah. many memories of, like, at school and it being, like, non-uniform day. And I need, like, my dad, I need an outfit, I need an outfit. And then my, my dad would be, like, going into charity shops. And I'd be, like, literally mortified. So I'd be like, I don't want anyone to see that we're going into a charity shop. But, like... I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people no. that my mom bought me clothing from charity shops because no it was way. considered shameful. Yeah. No way. Yeah. But, like, now, I really appreciate it. And now I feel like it's harnessed, like... Actually, like I love like more quality stuff rather than just like quick, quick, quick stuff. Um, but yeah, like I will say, like as a you know thirteen year old, not having like amazing trainers every non uniform day was like quite scarring. <laughs> yeah, no, it's and this is a part of the culture that we have to change. We have to start talking to young kids at the school age. We need to talk about these things in schools because. This is what drives it. Like, I became obsessed with The Gap because my mother would not buy me clothing from there. Now, back then, like this, we're talking like 1992, Gap was not fast fashion then. Like, I actually remember when Gap was a really stand-up quality brand. And then I remember when the H&Ms, the Top Shops, the Uniglo's started trickling over to the United States. And then I remember Gap being like, quick, we have to compete with them, water down everything. It's like getting like a pot of noodles and then like, sticking it in like a massive soup pan and getting a hose. I remember seeing that happen to brands who were actually making pretty decent clothing. And that's also sad. 
Is there any shops on the high street that are, you know, that you, you would say, okay, it's, it's pretty okay to shop there, or is there none? Charity shops. Do it. <laughs> like, I... The point of my message isn't actually about being like, this is where you should shop from now, because all of this shopping is a part of the problem. Mm. The point of the message is to get people to think about it. I always get people that come to my page and they're like, where do I buy my clothing from now? And I'm like, well, if you need it immediately, I'm not going to come and like slap your wallet out of your hands if you go to the high street and get underpants. I'm not going to do that. But I think asking where do I shop from now actually speaks to the problem. Mm. You know what Mm. I mean? Like if you slow down, you give yourself a lot of time to start really researching this stuff. Start finding companies that you can truly actually believe in. And that's what I found. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't have time for that. But I'm like, okay, but you realize like you probably spend hours on your favorite fast fashion site every week scrolling through 14,000 dresses. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up social media, actually, because one of the main things I've noticed is that people seem to really level their sort of frustration or anger towards you or your page um, when they realise that something that they've been indulging in isn't good for them or people around them or the environment. Um, So how are you? How are you doing? And what what gives you the energy to be able to keep going with this? Because I can only imagine at times it's really... Um, most of the time I just say, you know what, this absolutely has nothing to do with me. Like this person's having a bad day. It's not my fault that like they're angry, but I also tell people like normalize changing your opinion when you realize you've been previously misinformed, which is something that I have to do regularly. I have been wrong about a lot of things because nobody is born being all knowing we're not. And, you know, and I, I get corrected all the time on my post and it's great because it helps me to grow and be a better writer. But I think people need to really start to take that with a grain of salt. And, you know, if you still want to buy from the system and you can afford not to, and you have better options because you're able-bodied, thin, cisgender, et cetera, that's on you. It's not my job to make you feel better about you wanting to participate in that. And that's really it. Like, Oftentimes it's more about them than it is about me. And I know that. And they know that too. Um, so one thing that's great about you, and I've seen you do it like so many times with different brands, is that you you actually go out there and you hold them accountable. And um, I feel like that must take so much energy. I must be so difficult. Um, how does it feel for you kind of like, you know, personally, when you see brands, you know, greenwashing, marketing themselves as inclusive without actually doing the work? It's I think it's only really tiresome when like a brand sets like their massive following on you. That's when it's really, really tiresome. But it's also just funny because I literally get brands that will be like, oh my God, babe, we'd love to send you some clothing. And I'm like, there's nothing on your website that fits me. And they're like, oh, that's embarrassing. And I'm just like, yeah, embarrassing for you. (laughs) This happens like once a month at least. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think it's how the brands react that really make or break the conversation. Because I have literally had brands that have been like, oh yeah, I think your page is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't really make a lot of plus size clothing. Let's change that. And they're like, you're absolutely right. And then they follow through. So not everyone has to act like an asshat when they're corrected. It's just fragile people that do it. And they make their fragility 
my problem, and it's not. <laughs> I love this song. <laughs> Sometimes I, I just sing song. things when I find something really ingratiating. I just sing it to myself. <laughs> but it's so annoying because it's like you're expending so much energy and being offended at being corrected when mm. you could just like literally just give like one moment to looking internally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think critique is good for us. It helps us to be better. If we lived in a world where nobody criticized anyone, it would be an epic shit show, you know? So like people really need to set their fragility aside. Like fragility is holding us back. People wanting to participate in systems and they know good and well that they absolutely don't have to and they choose to, that's fragility. You know, brands not wanting to make bigger sizes, but still wanting everyone to say how inclusive they are that's fragility, you know? But I think we have to just live in a more honest society. We have to live in an honest world. If I can hold my hand up and be like, yeah, I didn't grow up rich, but I bought a ton of fast fashion. I didn't have to. Then I think a lot of other people can do the same thing. Amazing. Should we get into spinning the wheel? I was just thinking that. I think we should. I think we should. I think we should. We'll just jump into it. Whatever comes up. Okay. So we have got number one. See thee? Okay. When was the last time you experienced nostalgia? Oh, that's really tough. Because I think we're living in a world where we all have chronic nostalgia because of the pandemic. So I feel like we're always thinking of a time before when we could go on holiday, where we could see our loved ones more frequently, when we could leave this island, when we could hang out with friends in a packed pub. I literally have nostalgia every day because of the circumstances in which we're operating under. And as someone who also lives in the UK, but my family is in America, hence the accent, I have hardcore nostalgia these days. I long for when I live down the street from my niece because she's my favorite person, you know? I just, yeah. I I couldn't even pinpoint a moment because it's just been, it's been a long couple of years. Mm. What brought you to the UK from America? Love, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) My partner is English and Mm. uh, we met online and dated long distance for two, two years, two to three years about. And uh, then it was just like, okay, one of us is going to have to move. And I was like, (laughs) I volunteer as tribute because London's pretty sweet. But I can say, like, nobody signed up for marriage in a way where it's just like, I know you guys love each other, but do you want to be in a two-bedroom flat for over a year together? No one saw that one (laughs) coming. (laughs) No, I know, I know. Um, nostalgia. I know. I agree with you. I'm nostalgic all the time about everything, especially at the moment. But I mean, even just talking before about unclosed days at school and like cherry shops and things, even like the embarrassment that I felt then, I even feel weirdly nostalgic for that now because it was just little me, like unaware of now the feeling of like being able to go into a charity shop and finding something beautiful. Like it's such an amazing feeling. Mm. I was really aware of, um, you know, that sort of shame. And I think part of it comes from like being a wallflower, like growing up, not getting invited to the birthday parties and whatnot by people who now follow me on social media. That's weird. Um, So I I hate it. My childhood, 
Like, mm. I always joke that I was born middle age, but this is definitely my full bloom. Is it? Mm. That's good to know. Oh, my good. goodness. I love being middle age. It's <laughs> awesome. People are like, you're not quite middle age. I'm like, yeah, but I feel it in my heart. <laughs> it's a strange one, isn't it, people? Because, I mean... It's no secret, like, I was bullied at school too, and, and that they do follow you online, but then when they take it a step further and you get, like, a message and they're like, really sorry for, for this, that that's... See, I don't even get that. I just get the oh. friend request, and I'm just like, <laughs> the audacity, <laughs> the lion, the witch, the audacity of this bleep. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I just get, like, random friend requests. Like, people will, like, read about something that I'm doing or whatever, and send me a Facebook friend request and that is that is a massive pet peeve of mine. It's so annoying because like would you have the same energy for like someone who wasn't kind of, you know, circulating on social media like No. And also like we've been out of high school for decades now. You had your time. Why are you messaging me? Like you realize this is very transparent, right? <laughs> like if you wanted to be friends, the time would have been I don't know, 15 years ago. <laughs> now it just seems, it seems a little convenient for you and I'm still the same person. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely worth it sometimes to just completely ignore. Well, most mm-hmm. of the time, if not all the time. I uh, have written people. I have written people and been like, hello, it's interesting that you send me this friend <laughs> request because we were never actually friends. I want to remind you of everything that you did that hurt my feelings uh, so that you could sit with this. Amazing. I have done I have done that before <laughs> and I am not ashamed of that. I'm like, I want to ruin your day like you've ruined mine because just seeing you send me a friend request has actually ruined my day. Mm-hmm. It brought up all of these bad emotions of being in all white spaces and none of you thinking, oh wow we don't treat the one black girl in our space very nicely. And so I'm going to make you, I'm going to hold you to account and I'm going to take all of these feelings that I'm feeling and I'm going to write it out so that you can hold Mm. those feelings. That's the perfect thing to do because they obviously just want to be absorbed with everything they did by being like, I'm friends with this person. Everybody wants quick forgiveness and that's just not how it works. And, you know, you saw that, I don't know if you watched The Handmaid's Tale, but the most recent episode had that exact scenario where there was somebody who had been a participant in the worst bits of Gilead, the horrible, you know, murder, torture, et cetera. And they're seeking forgiveness from um, someone who they, who they harmed and that person won't give them the forgiveness. And Mm. I, I have no, I think forgiving people is more about you than them. But if you're not ready to give it, then there's no point in giving mm. it. Mm. I agree. You can't force yourself. Mm. Yeah, I feel like there's often an expectation that you should be extremely forgiven at all times. But if it doesn't help you and doesn't make you feel any better, no. then why should you? I'll never forgive the Trump family for the rest of my life. And I will never forgive the people that voted for him. Mm. And that's okay. Like, I'm going to still move on and do awesome things. But I don't have to be like... It's okay that you vote it in a way which harms so many people. I don't, I'm not required to give people that, you know, I'm too busy trying to lift up the people that are deserving of my energy. Mm -hmm. And I do have a theory that, you know, our life and our bodies, we are composed of energy and, you know, I'm, I'm not super religious though. I am spiritual. And I think that, um, 
when this life ends, I think that energy goes somewhere else. But I think we only get a certain amount of energy in this life. And I think you should be discerning about who you give that energy to because there's 8 billion people on this planet. And I think out of those 8 billion, there might be a hundred that are your soulmates, both platonic and romantic. And you won't even get to meet all 100 of them because your paths won't cross. So hold out your energy for the people that 150% deserve it. I really needed to hear that. I really needed to. Thank you, honestly. Yeah, I really, of course. really needed to hear that. Um, it's hard. I think when you're young, we we get told that like, oh, you know, you've lost a friend. You're a bad person. No, actually, when you're young, you will change friendship groups many times. There will be, I think this notion that every person that you meet needs to be here for your full journey. I think that's really problematic because that's just not the reality of how humans are. Yeah, and it's also not fair on the other people that you that you try and make fit into your lives when you inevitably change. So. Like one of my most popular questions of the week was, can you be friends with someone if you don't like their significant other? And that answer is a firm no for me. <laughs> because the thing is, all you end up doing is swallowing your feelings about that person. And, you know, your friend, maybe they'll have a fight. And then your friend will come to you and be like, oh, yeah, um, you know, they're the worst. And then you'll like co-sign on it and be like, yeah, they're horrible. I've always thought they were horrible. And then they get back together again. You're like, oh, okay. So, my whole thing is if I don't like someone's partner, I just fade that friendship to black. Like, you know, if they don't stay with them and they want to come back and be friends, I, I don't lock doors, but I'm also not going to tolerate someone who's with someone who is, you know, bigoted or yeah. harmful or whatever. I'm just not going to do it. That's not how I want to spend my free time. But in friendships, you always have to with that person's partner. Like, it's always like, oh yeah, let's all go on holiday together and you can just bite your tongue the whole time while my partner says something that you completely disagree with that makes you super uncomfortable. I'm not about that life. It's so good how like decisive your boundaries are. Like I feel like I need to explore that bit more. It took a long time to get there and I can tell you my family told me I was mean for many (laughs) years, but they were wrong. They were wrong. (laughs) Yeah, they were. Okay. Um, I'm going to spin and see what I get. (coughs) Exciting. Okay, 93. How would you describe humanity to an alien civilization? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I make this analogy a lot when it talks, when it comes to like how we're basically consuming ourselves to a death. Like I always tell people, I'm like, listen, even if like, you know, you feel like there's nothing that we can do at least slow down on the shopping because imagine that like we don't stop climate emergency humanity dies out and then thousands of years from now an alien civilization travels to the planet and they're looking at our ocean and just seeing a sea of boohoo many one-time dresses and they're like wow they shot themselves to death (laughs) isn't that mortifying like i would be mortified by that i would be turning over in my grave if an alien society came to our planet and like saw it in the state that it was you know if you do it for no reason do it for pride (laughs) do it for like i would not want someone to see our planet in this state and be like wow and they called themselves intelligent life you know 
Mm. It's like when you don't want people to come into your house because it's a mess. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I always tell my friends, oh, you've caught it in such a mess. And they're like, eh, it's, you know, like we're friends. <laughs> and also it's, it's always kind of in this state. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> That's how you know you're friends with someone when you're not like trying to like put on those airs. But like, I would like for visitors to plant toward this planet to not like visit our planet and just be like, wow, humanity was a mess. So let's just like get it together. So we are standing is a little bit better in the universe. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm like watching like Love Island, for example, I'm just like, wow, like what would... I can't do it. I can't do it. How do you all do it? It's so interesting. Like, can you imagine if an alien was watching that and it's like, look at you with your silly little bikini on, like... Talking about <laughs> mugging you off and we see little yeah. words. Like, it's, just, it's just so funny. I can't, I can't do it because honestly, it's so clear that the producers are anti-black. Like there is mm-hmm. anti, like I actually muted the tweet yeah. because I couldn't take it it's anymore horrible. and I was finding it. I, yeah. And I just, also a friend of mine told me that there was a campaign where people were trying to get black Twitter accounts to like, live tweet it for free when they should have been offering payment for it. Like there was like a campaign where people were emailing, you know, saying, Oh, hi, we work for this company. And, you know, we were wondering if you wanted to join our love Island campaign, but there was no budget. And so as a black person from that fact alone, I cannot defend it. Like Mm -hmm. we hear about this stuff all the time. And I heard about that on the slide and I thought that's shameful Two, the show seems extremely anti-black. And three, the show is a vehicle for fast fashion. So from those, like, even even though, like, yes, there's a part of me that's curious about it because it's obviously a phenomenon. I just can't Mm. do it. I can't. I'm not not shaming it. Like, I don't put that on Twitter because I don't want to be like, Mm, I'm superior <laughs> to everyone because nobody likes that person. But I personally cannot do it because it, it depresses me. It's really horrible how kind of literally every single year there'll be a dark-skinned, beautiful black woman who is just like, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, my type's blonde and black. Just say you don't like black women. Just like, just say it. Like, it's just, mm. it's so frustrating and so horrible and it's so predictable every single yeah. year. I feel like whiteness, whiteness has always been like that. I remember in high school being people like just being like, oh, I'm not into black men or, you know, boys that like, I knew that just, just say it, just say like you want to date a, a white blonde woman. That's, you know, but like nobody wants to say it because they know that that looks pretty weird and fetishy. And then like on the opposite side, then you get like, men where I've smelled a fetish on them. And then you're just like, hmm, what are the other, what are the other people that you've dated look like? Oh, oh, I see. You know, who does a really great job of that? Um, Michaela Cole and chewing gum. There's an episode where she meets this guy and he seems perfect and he's super hot. And she's just like, what is happening here? And then like, <laughs> she starts to realize that like, it is definitely a fetish. And like, mm. he's got her like dressing up like a Zulu warrior <laughs> and stuff. And it's just, it's so inappropriate, but so well done. And just like, she really nailed that episode. I was, I was pissing myself laughing. Anything she does she is, is just incredible. like, God damn. Every, everything she touches is gold. Um, 
But yeah, that episode was just like, that. that is some nail on the head stuff, you know? And it also reminds me of like the white boys I grew up with that were like, oh, I'm into hip hop. I'm blacker than you, Aja. I'm like, fuck off, fuck off. <laughs> but uh, Northern Virginia definitely breeds like a certain type of person for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, um, I don't remember the question. We went on a roundabout <laughs> circle there. It was about aliens, but I think maybe they should just stay away. It's not worth it for them. I know. Well, that's, I saw a meme where someone was like, all these aliens, like recently there have been some sightings of things unexplained to the sky and people are like, they're just passing us by because they know it's a mess. <laughs> like they're yeah, like, mm-hmm, no. we're not, not going to stop there. Not today. <laughs> it's a gasp. They're weird and they're ruining their planet. Well, they're letting fossil fuel companies ruin the planet and then trick them into thinking that it's all of our responsibility. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Juno wants to say hi. Say hi. Oh, hello. hello. Oh, okay. Bye bye. <laughs> She's left her tail in. There we go. Look. Did you, did you get the leaf? Uh, no, but she lost interest oh, in it. They, they do that, don't they? Um, mm-hmm. Okay, number 47. Is there a personality trait that you just can't stand? Oh, I can't stand greed. I can't stand it. Like, I think we all had that friend growing up who never worried about money, who was such a tight ass. Like, I've had people like that in my life and I've just decided I can't. I can't with those people. Like, I think, truthfully, American culture is a little more giving when it comes to money than, like, UK culture is. And I think that has something to do with the tax system. Because, like, in America, it's really customary to, like, just treat your friends if you can. That's the family that I was born in. Like, my dad, he's real quick to, like, pick up that check when we go out to dinner. And it doesn't even matter who it is. Like, that's how he wants to be. And I'm like that too. And my partner had to be like, you can't pick up every check. You're making our friends really uncomfortable. <laughs> and I'm like, why is everyone so weird about money here? It's really you know? weird, but isn't like, it? It is yeah. quite bizarre, but there's definitely like certain rules about money here that do not exist in America. But both countries are weird about, you know, talking honestly about money. I, like I, who has it and who doesn't. Yeah, like, I really love to talk about money, like with, you know, friends i just feel like that if that conversation is more open then everyone knows where everyone's at and not in terms of like oh you know i'm gonna shame you because you don't have as much as me or vice versa but it's like if if we're more open it's just it's it's an honest thing like Mm -hmm. if i have a friend who i know is struggling with like freelance work or whatever if we go out for a coffee you better believe i'm exactly yeah lately Everything has been on me when I hang out with my friends because I got a book deal. Now, it wasn't like, you know, six figures, but still, in a time where there is so much economic strife, I am still someone who, you know, has been lucky enough to earn during this time period. And I want to repay that. And I also think it's like, it's like investing in your friendship, like, say like you know i never get to write a book again and everything goes to shit for me god forbid maybe my friends will hit me back for that generosity you know what i mean but like i feel like money spent on friends is always money well spent it's never there's never a moment where i'm just like 
oh, I should not have taken that person out for coffee. Absolutely not. And now that I'm not spending $1,200 a year at certain stores, I certainly can buy books. People will be like, I want to send you my book. And I'm just like, that's so lovely. I was going to buy it. And they're like, okay. And then I'll still buy it and give it to a friend. You know what I mean? So I just think, um, I don't like stingy people. Mm. I find it really unattractive. I really don't like going out to dinner with that person who like breaks out a calculator when like oh, the when like the bill, the bill comes. I, it's fine. I, I I can't like and also like I'm just like I'll get it. I'd rather get it than listen than like listen to you like scrutinize over like who had the extra dumplings. You know what I mean? Like I just I can't with stinginess. But at the same time. That extends overall to my message because I don't like billionaires. I think that there should be a wealth cap. If I woke up and there was a billion dollars in my bank account, I would be horrified. Like if it magically happened and I'd be like, how do I get rid of this? I don't want anyone to know that I have this and I don't want it because I think that there's something. I think that there's something a little bit evil about sitting on that amount of money while so much of the world struggles basically it's i really it's do beyond belief that someone could be that even just one million let alone you know how much the billionaires that we know about have it's like it's beyond belief that they can just live in the knowledge they have that much money when so many other people are you dying know, because they can't afford to live yeah it's hard because in london you know one million actually doesn't get you that far in the property market which is really sad and we need to do something about that so I think my my theory is really sent for the people that have outrage as well. Like all I want in life is a house. And I realize I live in one of the world's most expensive cities. So I might need to save a lot of money and sell a lot of books to do that. But after your basic needs are covered, the rest is gravy and you can't take it with you. So like, you know, if I were to be, you know, have a lot of money, I would obviously want to take care of like my parents because as your parents get older, their care gets expensive. Um, I want to help, you know, my sister out a little bit. I want to help my other sister. I've got two sisters. I want to buy a house. After that, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. But what we need to realize is that the extremely rich people have enough money to do that a hundred, a thousand times Mm -hmm. over. You know, and that's the problem there is that there's a lot of wealth hoarding going on. And I think that there's more than enough on this planet for everybody to be okay. Mm -hmm. But there's too many who's taking too much more than their fair share. Mm. And our governments are allowing them to get away with it. While saying that there's scarcity and, oh, it's overpopulation. Mm, They think so. I don't know. I think there's somebody who has a hundred... And $69 billion in the bank. And here's the thing. I think also our brains cannot grasp what a billion actually looks like, which is why in the center of my book, I actually have like a few visuals of what a billion looks like. So that people can really understand that when H&M says that they had $4 billion worth of unsold stock, what that looks like. If each, that was like, I think 2017 or 2018, I can't remember, but like, if H&M Wholesale has $4 billion worth of, un, you know, unsold stock, which they then have to destroy, you know, I think if you put a billion dollars edge to edge, like dollar bills edge to edge 
it would actually wrap around the earth several times. So if you have 1 billion t-shirts, because let's say wholesale, they paid four pounds for each of those items that they unsold. That's 1 billion. Of course, they probably paid less for it because we know that like the markup is extremely high while the garment makers make actual pennies on the garments. So let's just say 1 billion unsold items. That's enough clothing to wrap around the planet a few times. That's so scary. That's so, so scary. And when people start to grasp that, you really start to see exactly what the problem is. Yeah. Mm, God. Ah. I feel like that's, I mean, that literally made me grimace then. But I think that's a really good image to leave people with that they should think about. Can we leave on a high note? (laughs) That kind of is though, right? You all look horrified. I am horrified. It's scary. It's so scary. It is absolutely horrifying. But I think, you know, when you put something like that and it becomes literally impossible to ignore surely that's going to be the turning point for a lot of people, which is what we want. Because people do find it easy to avoid. And a lot of it is because people don't want to feel like shit. But it's like you said, it's, it's everything's changed now. We can only try. We just need to be honest. And like, can we just be honest about the fact that we were in lockdown for a year? And I don't know about you, but there were like weeks where I just alternated the same two outfits. Like, I think we need to be honest about how much we're consuming why we're consuming and what compels us to consume. Because I don't know about you, but I think most of my friends and peers, especially at my socioeconomic level, could probably go years without buying new clothing. That's mm-hmm. that's what I truly believe. You know, it's not on me to tell a person who's on the poverty line what they should do. Like, that's none of my business, but they're actually not the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, they aren't the problem. So, like, let's direct our attention to the places where the problems are and start you know, maybe gently talking to our peers about these problems and how we change each other and ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I feel enlightened. I know. But I feel like that's quite a nice place to end. I don't know. Me too. It's incredible. Thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And when does your book come out? Uh, My book comes out at the end of September in the UK, October 5th in the US. And, uh, I'm just so excited. Like, uh, I've always wanted to just write a book. And that was why I started my Instagram platform, not to sell people, because that's part of the problem is selling clothing and stuff on Instagram, but to actually have a platform for my writing. So this is the, this is the, this is what I set out to do. Yeah. And uh, I hope that if you've enjoyed this conversation today, that perhaps you might consider buying, buying a copy of it. Amazing. I can't wait and, to read um, it. I think that's everything, isn't it? Thank you so much, Aja. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for this conversation. It was really, um, you know, a spot of joy on a day where my cat is injuring herself yet again. 